through 27, Jesus was applying the Sermon on the Mount. He was calling his audience to take action, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As well as, he was warning them of the consequences if they did not. Take action, and if you do not, there will be consequences. And that's, what it, that's exactly what this morning's text is, a warning. And it's a warning not to those outside the church, but to those inside of it. It's a warning to all those who confess Jesus Christ to be their Lord. In other words, it's a warning for us. Let us pay close attention then to the words of our text this morning, even as I now read them. Verse 13 begins, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we as your people desire that you get all the glory. And so we ask that you glorify yourself now through the preaching of your word. Help us to get a better understanding of Christ and his sovereignty. As or of Christ as judge. Help us not to turn a deaf ear to your word. Help us not to harden our hearts. 
May we receive your words, no matter how hard they may be to receive. Be gracious to us. For any in this room who are strangers to Christ, may they be after this morning's service friends of Christ. May they be your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In this morning's text, there are three P's that are very sobering to all who confess Jesus as Lord. And the three P's are a clear precondition, a conscience-stricken protest, and a crushing pronouncement. And that's how I've chosen to construct my sermon. First, we will see the clear precondition. Second, the conscience-stricken protest. And third, the crushing pronouncement. Let's get started. First, we will see the, the clear precondition. A precondition, by the way, is simply something that must come before or is necessary to a subsequent result. With that definition in mind, please direct your eyes at verse 21. Do you see the clear precondition? Do you see the something that must come before entering the kingdom of heaven? Do you see what is necessary? What is it? It is doing the will of the Father. The only people who will be permitted to enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of the Father on earth. To be absolutely clear, and as Christ himself communicated, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter. I cannot overstate how many people, especially in the United States, need to hear this. I say that because Christianity is the most adhered to religion in America. Did you know that 75% of polled American adults identified themselves as Christians as recently as in 2015? 75%. It desperately needs to be heard that to profess Christianity is not proof a person is saved. Now, we need to be careful here. The reason being that we might conclude Christ was criticizing people for saying, Lord, Lord, as if that were wrong. That's not what Christ was doing here. Saying, Lord, Lord, to the Lord of Lords is good and right, for so he is. In fact, it is necessary Although not everyone who confesses Christ as Lord will be saved, no one will be saved who does not confess Christ as Lord. So what's the issue? The issue is saying, Lord, Lord, with one's lips, but not with one's life. That's the problem. Empty words. The person who believes rightly about Jesus and speaks rightly of and to him but who does not live for him will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if anyone doubts this, I suggest you consider the demons. Consider that the demons believe rightly about the person and work of Christ. Consider also that they speak rightly of and to him. In fact, if you examine the dialogues between Christ and the demons in the Gospels, you will find that they spoke to Christ with the most accurate and reverent words. Yet, we know, despite how they spoke, 
the demons are condemned to a Christless eternity. In light of this, let us be careful not to base the assurance of our salvation solely on the words we say, but also on the works we do. Not only must we be professors of Christianity, but practicers of Christianity. As John Stott said, our final destiny will be settled, Jesus insists, neither by what we are saying to him today, nor by what we shall say to him on the last day, but by whether we do what we say, whether our verbal profession is accompanied by moral obedience. Now, all of this, no doubt, will confuse some. And what's most likely to cause confusion is the thought that Christ was telling his hearers how to enter the kingdom of heaven. However, that is not what he was telling them. Christ was telling his hearers not how to enter the kingdom of heaven, but who will enter. He was telling them the condition, not the cause of entrance. While the cause of entrance, humanly speaking, is conversion, that is repentance and faith, which leads to justification, the condition of entrance is sanctification. To say that another way, Doing the will of the Father does not earn salvation. It evidences it. And only those who evidence salvation will enter the kingdom of heaven. We must get that correct. And for the record, we here at Summit Park Bible Church believe that salvation is by faith and not by works. However, we also believe that a saving faith works. And if any person's faith is without works, that person's faith is dead. It is useless. Isn't that what James tells us? Turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 is the passage I would like to read for us this morning. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary For their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There you have it. A true saving faith works. And not only does James tell us that, tells us that, but many other scriptures do as well, only with different vocabulary. And for example, I would like you to turn to John chapter 1. I don't want anyone leaving here this morning thinking or questioning really the words that Christ has said in the Sermon on the Mount. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says, If we say, and just note the contrast between saying and doing in these verses we'll be reading. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 3. Verses 3 through 5 say, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 4. This will be the last passage I'll have you read or that I will read to you. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It doesn't get any clearer than John. John's very black and white, as I'm sure you can see. And so we must conclude that fine talk that is not corroborated by a distinctly Christian walk will not permit a person entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now, having said all that I have, I want to come back to the clear precondition in our text 
Since the only people who will be permitted to enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the will of the Father on earth, we had better be sure what it is, right? So what exactly is it to do the will of the Father? And in explaining this, I will defer to the words of A.W. Pink, who wrote, What is meant by doing the divine will? Obviously, it does not connote a perfect or flawless performance thereof. That's good, isn't it? For as Pink went on to say, there is no Christian who has ever attained to such excellence in this life. What then does it mean? It means that I have surrendered my heart and will to the claims of Christ, so that I truly desire him to reign over me and order my life. It means that I have subjected myself to his authority, and that that is the prevailing bent of my mind and constant endeavor to please and honor him in all things. It means that I genuinely aim to be both internally and externally conformed to his holy image, and that it is my greatest grief when I do those things which displease him. It means that I truly seek that my thoughts, affections, and actions are regulated by his precepts. If that was just a bunch of words to you, listen to what Pink said next. It is not a sinless obedience which is here in view, but it is a sincere one. It is not a forced one, but one prompted by love. It is not merely an external compliance with the divine commands, but a doing the will of God from the heart. Is that us? Does God in very deed occupy the throne of our hearts? Does he actually rule over our lives? Despite what we may say until we bend our knees and bow at his feet and until his will becomes the rule of our lives, self is what dominates and we disown Christ as our Lord. As I was preparing this sermon, I came across a verse which is written on an old slab in the cathedral of Lübeck, Germany. And the verse reads this. Thus speaks Christ our Lord unto us. Ye call me master and obey me not. Ye call me light and see me not. Ye call me way and walk me not. Ye call me life and desire me not. Ye call me wise and follow me not. Ye call me fair and love me not. Ye call me rich and ask me not. Ye call me eternal and seek me not. Ye call me gracious and trust me not. Ye call me noble and serve me not. Ye call me mighty and honor me not. Ye call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. That's the thrust of verse 21. Now that we've seen the clear precondition, we will see second, the the conscience-stricken protest. Look at verse 22. It says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I would submit to you that this 
along with verse 23, is one of the most, if not the most, sobering verses in all of Scripture. And I say this for several reasons. The first reason I say this is because of the term many. I mean, it would be one thing if Christ had said, a few will say to me on that day, an odd person here or there, but that's not what he said, is it? Christ said, many will say to him. Many will be trying to convince Christ that he knows them on the day of judgment. This, of course, means that the percentage is higher for some of us here this morning to be described in verse 22. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the one great lesson to be learnt from this passage is the danger of self-deception. Self-deception is a danger to the many. Self-deception is a danger to us. This is partly why I am preaching on this text this morning, because it is more likely than not that some of us here will be one of the many, and obviously I don't want that. Just as a doctor who hears of a prevalent sickness taking the lives of many would sound an alarm, warning people to take the proper precautions, I'm warning you all of this. Nonetheless, many people won't like what I'm preaching on this morning. To them, I asked what the Apostle Paul asked the Galatian Christians. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I hope not. Don't be offended by me. Don't be offended by Christ. Although his words are discomforting, they will help us be discerning concerning our spiritual state. That's the first reason I said verse 22 is the most sobering verse in all of Scripture, because of the term many. The second reason is because it implies the possibility of a lifelong deception. It implies the possibility of a lifelong deception. Did you notice that? Note when the many will make this conscience-stricken protest. They will make it on that day, that is, the last day, the day of judgment. What this tells us is that there will be many people who for their whole life on earth were wrongly convinced they were Christians. And when they finally come to realize they were deceived, it'll be too late. Can you imagine? I'm sure we all can, but we'd rather not. It's a horrible, horrible picture. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote about the many, they were perfectly happy about themselves, quite assured about their whole position, and they never suspected for a second that there was any fault to find in them. They had no doubt about themselves. They were perfectly happy. They were quite assured. It had never crossed their minds even to contemplate the possibility that they could be anything but Christians and saved people, heirs of glory, and of eternal bliss. And yet, what our Lord says to them is that they are lost. There can be no doubt about it. The day of judgment is going to be a day of many surprises. That's the second reason I said verse 22 is mo the most sobering verse in all of Scripture, because it implies the possibility of a lifelong deception. The third reason is because how strong a person's self-deception can be. How strong it can be. Consider that the many 
will be so self-deceived on that day that they will protest to Christ that he knows them. They will argue with him as if the good shepherd doesn't know who his sheep are. Do you see how strong self-deception can be? Not even Jesus Christ himself telling the many he never knew them will be enough to convince them that they are not Christians. We know this because the grammar of the question in verse 22 tells us they expected a positive answer. They're expecting to hear by Christ, you know what, you're right. If not even being disowned by Christ is enough to reveal to someone that he or she is self-deceived, it's hard to imagine what will. Lord, help us. Only a work of grace can show the lack of grace. That's the third reason. I said verse 22 is the most sobering verse in all the scripture. The fourth and last is because of what the many will have done. What the many will have done. I mean, consider their resumes. They prophesied in Christ's name, in Christ's name cast out demons, and in Christ's name performed many miracles. Surely people with such great gifts who also put them to use, and in Christ's name, are Christians, right? Wrong. It's clear from our text that gifts are no guarantee of grace not even spiritual gifts. As the Puritan Matthew Mead put it, a graceless professor may have greater gifts than the most holy believer. He may outpray, outpreach, and outdo. Does that seem wrong to you? It is somewhat shocking, but I believe it is what Scripture says. A lot of Scholars and commentators point out that Christ doesn't deny their claims, and I doubt that they would try to lie to Christ to his face. Another scripture that seems to teach that gifts are no guarantee of grace is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 2. Why don't we turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Verses 1 and 2 say, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, love for God and love for man, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove Mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. By the way, when Paul wrote, I am nothing, he literally meant spiritually non existent. Again, we see that gifts are no guarantee of grace, not even the greatest gifts. These are hyperbolic gifts. Paul's uh, exaggerating these gifts to make a point. But even if a person had these exaggerated gifts that don't exist to the extent that he writes of them and did not have a love for God, that person would be spiritually non-existent. 
So you see, the truth is, a man may preach like an apostle, pray like an angel, and yet may have the heart of a devil. And if you're still not convinced, just consider the false prophet Balaam. God used Balaam to bless Israel and even to prophesy of Christ's coming. Consider also Judas Iscariot, who no doubt performed the same wondrous works the other eleven did. And yet we know he was not saved. Because of this, let us not rest in our gifts. That's the point. Don't rest in your gifts, nor in the use of your gifts. Because they are no guarantees of grace. Professing Christ is not proof a person is saved, and neither is practicing gifts in the name of Christ. What is, someone may ask. Well, once again, the answer is loving, obedience, faith, working through love. And this is what the many will lack. As Charles Spurgeon said, they were very glib of tongue when they took to prophesying, but the, ne- the message never came out of their hearts. They never did the things they told others to do. They were earnest to exhort, but not diligent to set in a good a good example to their hearers. They cast out devils, but at the same time, they did not themselves escape the power of the devil by giving up sin and following after righteousness. They failed in the matter of practical holiness. They had not the grace of God in their souls displaying itself in their ordinary, everyday actions. This last line is key. He says, they could talk, they could sing, They could prophesy, but they were not obedient to the divine commands, and they did not walk in the ways of God. It is one thing to practice gifts. It's another thing to practice godliness. And that is exactly what the many will do. They'll practice gifts and assure themselves they are saved, all the while they had lived godless lives, ungodly lives. As Christ described them, they were lawless. Perhaps now you understand why I said verse 22 is the most or one of the most sobering verses in all of Scripture. And we've now seen the clear precondition and the conscience-stricken protest. Last, we will see the crushing pronouncement. Verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. As one preacher of the past put it, there is more thunder in those words than you have ever heard in the most terrible tempest that has rolled over your heads. Those words will be the worst words the many will have ever heard. I never knew you. That, of course, doesn't mean Christ won't know who they were. After all, he'll know they were those who practiced lawlessness. He knows who they were, but what Christ will mean is that he never knew them intimately and personally as he knows only the elect. Brothers, sisters, there's a vast difference between Christ knowing about you and Christ actually knowing you. You want to make certain Christ actually knows you. Make no mistake, it won't matter who else knows you on that day. It won't matter if the person next to you knows you. It won't matter if the pastor knows you. All that will matter is whether or not Christ knows you. 
whether or not he knows you determines your destiny. Spurgeon said, and with a text like this, it's hard not to lean on other men. Spurgeon said, I can almost imagine someone turning around in that day and saying to some Christians who used to sit in the same pew, you knew me. Yes, they will reply, we knew you, but that is of no avail, for the master did not know you. I can picture some of you crying out to your minister, Spurgeon says, Pastor, did not you know us? Surely you recollect what we used to do. What can he reply? Ah, yes, sorrowfully do I own that I know you, but I cannot help you. It is only Christ knowing you that can be of any avail to you. So I have to ask, does Christ know you, or does he just know about you? To put it in different terms, do you know Christ, or do you just know about Christ? There is a vast difference between the knowledge of God and knowing God. Now, I know questions such as I have raised are hard to ask ourselves. I know they can be discomforting and distressing, but it is better for us to deal with a little discomfort today than lasting discomfort on that day. It's much more preferable to discover Christ doesn't know us now in the present than when he makes this crushing pronouncement. No doubt, some here have been taught never to question their salvation. Some may have even been taught that it is sinful to do so, as if uh, by questioning their salvation, they are somehow questioning the divine promises. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is simply not the case. In fact, the Bible exhorts Christians to examine themselves, to test themselves, to see if they are in the faith. It exhorts them to make every effort to confirm their calling and election. Self-examination, then, far from being sinful, is a spiritual duty. So don't be hesitant to ask yourselves hard questions about your salvation. And if you at all begin to doubt that you have been regenerated, that you have been converted, call out to Christ right then and there. Surprisingly, that's exactly what Charles Spurgeon did at the age of 42. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, one of two of his sermons on this morning's text, said, I felt, as I was thinking over this subject, well, perhaps my Lord does not know me. He says, so I made sure that he should, for I sought him there and then. Spurgeon went on to say, and I exhort you to do the same. If you fear that you do not know him, trust him this very moment. Then, if you have made a mistake hitherto and have not really known him, you will begin to know him now. And if you have known him, you will blessedly renew your acquaintance with him, and the question that troubled you will disappear. Similarly, John MacArthur said, and this is very short, he says, listen, if you feel in your heart that you want to invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord and Savior of your life, and you've done it before, do it again. Do it again. At best, you're saved for the first time. At worst, your faith is renewed. Now, obviously, it's most desirable to have an assurance of salvation, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are saved, to be steadfast and not wavering in your confidence. After all, 
assurance as heaven, this side of heaven. However, if as you examine yourself, you do begin to doubt, do not hesitate even for a second to renew your faith in him. Whether he knows you or not, go to him, trust in him, rest in him. We've now seen the clear precondition, the conscience-stricken protest, and the crushing pronouncement. And in closing, I want to provide you with six questions for self-examination. Since self-examination is a spiritual duty, I want to help you as much as I can to carry it out. If you're ready, the first question is, have I accepted Christ in all of his offices? Have I accepted Christ in all of his offices? What do I mean by that? I mean, have you accepted Christ as prophet, priest, and king? You see, as a prophet, Christ reveals. As a priest, he redeems. As a king, he rules. So to accept Christ in all of his offices is to accept the, wor the words of Christ, the work of Christ, and the will of Christ. It's to believe on what he said, rest in what he did, and submit to what he commands. You should know that hypocrites do not accept Christ in all of his offices. They receive Christ by halves. As one author asserted, many embrace Christ as a priest, but they do not own him as a king and prophet. They like to share in his righteousness, but not partake of his holiness. They would be redeemed by him, but they would not submit to him. They would be saved by his blood, but not submit to his power. Many love the privileges of the gospel, but not the duties of the gospel. But the true Christian owns Christ in all of his offices. Have you accepted Christ in all of his offices? That's the first question for self-examination. The second is... Have I experienced a thorough change? Have I experienced a thorough change? The work the Holy Spirit performs in a person is perfect as to its parts, although not as to degrees. That is to say, although the Spirit does not make a person perfect in this life, he makes a change to every part of that person. He turns the balance of the mind so that God and his glory far outweigh the world and the things of the world. He turns the bias of the will, so that the desires of Christ and not self are what is most sought after. He turns the bent of the affections, so that the Savior is the object of love and not sin. Just as corruption is total, depravity is total, conversion is total, nothing is left untouched. Have you experienced a thorough change? That's the second question. The third question for self-examination is, do I look to the manner as well as to the matter of my duties? In other words, do you pay attention not only to what you do, but to why you do it? You're careful to come to church, to pray, to read your Bible, and all that is good, but are you careful to do those things out of a desire to please God rather than for the praise of men. Beware of focusing on the what and forgetting the why. That's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees did. And we all know Christ's evaluation of them. 
Do you look to the manner as well as to the matter of your duties? That's the third question to help you with self-examination. The fourth is, does my will line up with God's word? The will of a true Christian corresponds with the word of God. There is a similarity between the two. And the simple reason for that is because God has written his law on their hearts. The same righteousness God commands in his word, he implants in his children. This means that when a Christian reads the commands in scripture, his spirit says within him, yes, that is what I want to do. And when a Christian sins, he cries out with the Apostle Paul saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Do you say that? Does your will line up with God's word? That was the fourth question. The fifth question for self-examination is, Do I do what I do to be saved or because I am saved? A Christian does what he does because of God's love, not for God's love. He lives out of grace, not for God's grace. He sees salvation as the reason for obedience, not as the reward for it. Do you do what you do to be saved or because you are saved? What is your motivation? The last question is, is my obedience partial or total? Partial or total? Do you obey some of the commands in Scripture and neglect others? Do you practice the precepts that perhaps come easy to you but pass over the more difficult ones? Do you have beloved sins that you are unwilling to part with? You must know partial obedience is not true obedience. But Christian, I thought no one is sinless. That's true. No saint is sinless. However, it is also true that no saint consciously and continuously coddles certain sins. Rather, they struggle against all sin. Will they fail? Of course. But the fight is there. A true Christian cannot live comfortably, that's a key word, comfortably with any known sin. Is your obedience partial or total? Those are the six questions for self-examination. They are by no means exhaustive, but I hope they will help you. And again, I know there are, they are hard to ask, but just as it's better to get a deadly di- uh, disease diagnosed early rather than too late, it's better for us to find out we are strangers to Christ now than on that day. So let us, by God's grace, examine ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ's warning. Although warnings never tickle our ears, they are for our good. And so we thank you once again. Father, as we have seen, nothing but a work of grace will show the lack of grace. And if any of us think we are saved when we are not, please be gracious to us and reveal our self-deception to us. And help us right then and there to believe on Christ. Father, I do pray for any of your children who are here this morning, who are easily disturbed, who are easily 
brought to doubt their salvation, that you would comfort them, that you would uh, assure them by your spirit that they are your children. Obviously, this text is not for them, but it's for those who are assured when they shouldn't be. I leave that work to you, and again, we thank you for your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen.